as many of you know, a few weeks ago, a few short weeks ago, I was not here. I was in Switzerland. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy to be back and all that, but it was a wonderful trip. And um, while I was there, I was there with just my parents, and we went all over and saw lots of beautiful cities, old cities. We uh, stayed a couple nights in the Alps um, and just did a lot. But uh, the longest single trip we went on is one day we took a four-hour train ride to Zermatt, which is the little town that sits at the base of the Matterhorn Mountain, um, which is, you know, an iconic mountain. Um, but when we boarded the train very early in the morning, sprinting to get to it um, without coffee or breakfast because we're the Richards and we're always late, um, when we were running there, we were very concerned because the forecast said that it was going to be cloudy all day in Zermatt. So were we going to take this four-hour train, we're going to get up early, miss breakfast and coffee, take a four-hour train ride, and not ever see the Matterhorn. Uh, that is what we were worried about. Um, when we got to Zermatt, it was indeed cloudy and cold, and we looked up, and we couldn't see the Matterhorn, and we couldn't see any mountains at all. We had to ask people where it supposedly was, and they would point, and they'd say, like, it's over there if it comes out. Um, so once we got coffee and breakfast, we went to the visitor center, and they told us about a hike that we could take called the Five Lakes Five Lakes Hike, where we would take a rail car, and then we'd take a gondola, and then we could hike to these different lakes along the way, but this was on a mountain right across the valley from the Matterhorn. So if the Matterhorn came out, we would get this spectacular view of it if it came out. Um, so we, we did not despair, though, because we knew that weather in the Alps can change quickly, and so we maintained hope that we would indeed see the Matterhorn in all of its glory. Um, as we, when we got to the top, when we took the rail car and the gondola and we got up there, we looked across the valley and we could just see the like massive base of the Matterhorn. So we could see some of it, but most of it was still covered in clouds. And it was, we continued to hike on this, uh, it was like a six mile hike, although it was mainly downhill, which was nice. Uh, it was a few hours long as we continued to hike Slowly, more and more of the clouds kind of got out of the way, and we'd see more and more of the Matterhorn. And then a big gust would come in and block it, and then it would clear out. And so, um, so we were getting closer. And I kept saying, I think we should just be happy with what we've got. Like, it's still amazing looking. And my mom kept being like, quit being such a pessimist. We're going to see it. And I kept doing the classic, like, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist um, line. And so we got to the end of the hike. And you could see all of it except for like the most iconic part, the, the top that's like this sheer kind of pyramid of rock and that was all that we couldn't see. And sometimes like a little break would, and we'd see the very top but then we couldn't see this part. And it was just like, it was so close but not quite there. And when we got back down to Zermatt, to the town, we looked up and you could see all of one side of the peak. But then there was like clouds covering the other one. It kind of looked like a chimney with like smoke coming off. And so we could we could almost see all of it. And finally, right before we left, the clouds parted, and we saw the Matterhorn above us in all its glory with the sun shining on it, and it was truly spectacular. In our reading this morning, God's justice 
God's deliverance, maybe God's very self is a lot like the Matterhorn when we arrived in Zermatt. It's totally covered in clouds. It's invisible. Its very existence is suspect. The exiled Jews and this mistreated widow may have heard that God's presence, God's justice, God's redemption existed, but they can't see it for themselves. They didn't even know what direction to look in. All they could see were dark clouds. The Jews, as we talked about last week, um, were exiled in Babylon, and their exile made them question if God would ever forgive them because they believed that they, had been, they were being punished um, for their lack of faith, their lack of obedience to God, their idolatry. Or maybe they thought that God was too weak. Maybe the Babylonians' God was stronger than theirs. Or even worse, maybe the God of Israel never existed in the first place. Maybe they had only been petitioning an empty sky. Maybe there was no mountain behind the thick clouds. Maybe the clouds, in truth, were the only reality. The widow in Jesus' parable is the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. No one cares about her, and especially not this judge, who is powerful and has more important things to deal with. He doesn't even care what God thinks or what other people think, so he certainly doesn't care about this widow. But she keeps coming back again and again, and finally, out of utter annoyance, he grants her plea. I don't think of myself as a cynic. I actually like, really can't stand cynics most of the time. But as I read this parable this week, I found myself very much playing the role of cynic. Uh, when I read these words from Jesus, and will not God grant justice to God's chosen ones who cry to God day and night? Will God delay in helping them? I tell you, God will act quickly. Well, God will quickly grant justice to them. When I read that, I could not help the cynicism that rose within me. I couldn't help thinking, yeah, right, quickly? I thought of Botham Jean eating ice cream and watching TV in his living room when uh, Amber Geyer walked in, thought it was her apartment, and shot him in just a moment and killed him. It doesn't matter if Geyer gets 10 years or a lifetime. There's no bringing Botham back. Where is justice for Botham? I thought of a Tatiana Jefferson this week, shot by a white police officer while she played video games in her uh, house with her nephew. Where is justice for a Tatiana? I thought of the immigrant stories that we we're hearing in our book study on uh, the God who sees. As we learn about immigrants who are uh, mistreated in our own world and immigrants who are mistreated in scripture. And I wonder with everyone else in the group, I think everyone has asked at some point, where's the justice? Or that's not right. Or that just makes me angry. These are the things that came through my mind when I read this text this week. And maybe those aren't the things that come to your mind, but maybe you also have some cynicism rise up in you. Maybe there are other people, other things that you think about, and you think, really, God's justice is coming quickly? I don't know if I believe that. In times like these, it seems that there is no mighty mountain behind the clouds 
there are only empty skies. But as I prayed over this passage over the course of this last week, I realized that to think only of these injustices that are out there is to be in the words, is to be like in the words of James, it's like looking at your own reflection and then walking away and forgetting what you look like. It would be to ignore the blatant examples of God's justice and God's deliverance that I have seen not just over the course of my life, but just in the last week. And so after reflecting on this passage and reflecting on all of you on this church, I am here to tell you that there is a mountain looming behind the clouds, larger than we can comprehend, more majestic than we can imagine, as real as the Matterhorn. Because I have seen it. Just this week, I have seen it. Only in glimpses, sometimes more clearly than others, but I have seen it. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the justice, the deliverance, the presence of God that I have seen just this week. Last week, uh, a week ago, like almost to the moment, I shared with you that a family had come to me um, on like a Thursday, the previous Thursday, and the dad and the son came and the, the wife and the daughter were in the, were in the car, and they said that they had nowhere to go and that he, had, he was working and had continued to work, but his hours kept getting cut back and kept getting cut back, and he didn't have anywhere to go. And I shared with you that I was able, through our benevolence fund, to give him two nights in a hotel room, and how thankful he was for that, but how I felt, like, what is that going to do? What's two nights in a hotel going to do? But we prayed for them here. Um, and in response to that story, Randy shared, our, our interim financial secretary, shared that we had received an uh, unexpected donation from Leo and Stone, the school that previously uh, had space here, and um, that he thought we should just use that money to replenish our benevolence fund so that we could continue to help people. And I looked around and everyone was nodding like, yeah, of course. Of course we should take this gift that we had and, and, and make it a gift that we can give as well. Then I came in on Monday morning, and I got a call almost instantly from the, from the man who had been um, in my office. And he said that his boss had helped them secure a trailer so that they had a place to live, and that he never would have had time to do that work if he hadn't had two nights taken care of, because he would have spent all that time looking for a place to stay. Um, and so that right there is an answer to prayer, right? That right there is God working. But he said his family froze the night before because they didn't have any propane and the trailer was really cold. But because I had heard and seen from all of you that we had money that we were going to replenish our benevolence fund with, I went and got them propane, and I put more gas in their car, and I gave them a gift card to Albertsons. And I'm hoping to continue to work with them. And someone from our church said, well, I might know people that have jobs that could help these people. And so he passed along people to contact, and then I gave that to this man, and... Um, I don't know, we'll continue to pray and continue to work with them, and hopefully uh, God will continue to work. That was on Monday. So Sunday, we all prayed for them. Monday, this happened. On Tuesday, I sat with a group of you and discussed our book study on immigration, on the God who sees. And I listened to how all of you care about the vulnerable at our borders, how all of you want to be good neighbors. You want to obey God's command to care for the foreigner among us, and in that moment, I caught a glimpse of God's heart for the immigrants, and I caught a glimpse of your heart for immigrants. Then on Wednesday, 
I went to the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon's Collins Summit and sat with people of faith from all over our city and our state. And there were four breakout sessions. One was on immigrant justice, one was on environmental justice, one was on justice for houselessness, and the other was on transforming institutions for justice. In light of the things that have been happening in my life, I felt like going to the group on um, justice for the houseless was the most uh, relevant. And when I went there, I learned about a coalition of churches that is working on building uh, affordable housing for people. I learned about a church that gave up its own property to have affordable housing built on it, property that would have they could have sold for a lot more money. Um, I sat with a lawyer who was doing legal work to fight houselessness, and I sat with a social worker who worked with houseless youth in Beaverton School District. So that was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, I don't have a story, so I guess, you know, God took a break. It was a Sabbath. On, on Friday, I went to a workshop with other American Baptist pastors in the region, and we talked about racism and the effects of racism and how we can uh, work on that in ourselves and in our institutions and in our churches so that we can continue to dismantle racism to be anti-racist. And then just yesterday, I shared this a little bit a minute ago, but or in our announcements, but I went to the Cupcake Girls Bowl for Justice, where our church raised $5,000, about, almost, and the Portland group raised $82,000. And we did all that so that we can help fight sex trafficking and so that we can provide holistic care for those who work in the sex industry. And with those funds, they were able to take all of their clients on the wait list off their wait list. And I've heard that multiple times, and I just got chills saying it. How could I have seen all of that this last week and been cynical about God's justice? About God working. God is working. God is delivering. And it's easy for us to become disenchanted by the news. It's easy for us to lose heart, in Luke's words, because we can't see the whole mountain. And there are still places where God's justice and God's deliverance seem absent, where all we can see are thick clouds. But we can't ignore the glimpses that we see, glimpses that appear. The clouds do break. And sometimes we see large swaths of God's goodness. And sometimes we only catch a glimpse. But it's there. The truth is that we'll never see the fullness of God's justice, the fullness of God's deliverance, until Jesus comes again. Both Jeremiah's prophecy and Jesus' parable point to a future that isn't here yet. They are eschatological, to be very theological about it. They look ahead to God's future. Jesus' parable of the widow and the judge comes at the end of his little apocalypse in Luke, and it ends with this reference to his second coming. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth, Jesus asks. And while the point of this parable of the widow and the judge is that God is eager to provide justice, we can't miss the fact that the widow has to keep coming back and asking. And also Luke says clearly at the very beginning of the parable that Jesus told it so that we would not lose heart and that we would continue to pray. So if justice was just going to come all the time and deliverance was right there, we probably wouldn't have to be told not to lose heart or that we needed to keep praying. 
There's this knowledge that it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to feel hopeless, but we can't lose heart. Similarly, Jeremiah looks forward to a day when all will know the Lord and everyone will, you don't have to say know the Lord because everyone will know the Lord. And surely that day is not yet here. That's not going to happen until God's reconciling work that God is doing in Jesus Christ is complete. Jeremiah looks forward to a day that is coming but is not yet here. So we have to be real that we do wait for the future. But I'm guessing that some of us are already feeling uncomfortable with that idea, this kind of wait for Jesus' second coming and God's coming again, because we know Christians who just talk about that all the time and don't do anything in the time that, that is, right? Um, so, so we recognize that that's a danger. But we can't let the pendulum swing so far to the point that we forget that our hope ultimately lies in God. And we think that we have to do it all the time. We are not God. God is God, and God will deliver. And yet, even though we are not God, God continues to work through us. Even as we wait for that future, we recognize that it has begun to break into our present. Only a few uh, verses before this parable that Jesus tells about the widow and the judge, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here now, though only, again, in glimpses. All these examples of hope that I have shared over the last, that I've experienced over the last week, tell us that Jeremiah's prophecy is already coming true. God is writing God's law on the hearts of God's people, on your heart. God is writing God's law of love on your heart. You are acting not out of obligation, but out of love. You're internalizing God's law. Our scriptures point us to a day when God will be all in all, when all will be, be made right, when somehow justice and compassion but, and forgiveness will all come together in a way that none of them are diminished, but yet um, all continue to exist together in a way that only God can orchestrate. How does forgiveness and justice and compassion, how does it all come together? We don't know but we trust in the message of Scripture that God will bring that day about. And on that day, every enemy of God, that is everything that is contrary to goodness, to wholeness, to beauty, to life, everything that is unjust will be conquered by Christ. And the last enemy will be death. And on that day, the clouds will break and the sun will shine and we will see the glory of God in all its majesty. Jesus promises us, promises us that that day will come. But he knows that it's hard to wait for. He knows that we'll be tempted to give up. So this morning he tells us a story. A story about God's justice. He tells us to remain faithful. To pray and to pray and to pray. To never lose heart. Because our hearts belong to God. And even now, Right now, God is holding our hearts. God is etching the law of love on each of them. God is engraving the very words of life.